You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, you are our joy, and your word is our joy, and we ask now that we would be able to feast upon the truth of your word, that our eyes may be opened, that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that you would be glorified through our study, and we ask that you would send your spirit to minister to our hearts, to speak to us through your word. This is the only thing we can trust to give us an accurate revelation of who you are and what your will is for us. And so we ask that our time this morning would be profitable to the glory of Jesus Christ, For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Oftentimes when I'm sharing my testimony before a group like at a a camp or a a staff training or something that I I do with a group of teenagers, I will share in my own testimony how I became a believer early in my teens, about 13 or 14, somewhere in there. I trusted Christ. The Lord saved me at Kokolala Lake Bible Camp on the first year that I went there. And I was, uh, I, I didn't, wasn't raised in a, a Christian family that made church and Bible reading a priority. We had a, a Bible in our house. And, uh, my mom would oftentimes encourage us to look at it when we dusted it off. And that was about as far as any kind of spiritual insight went for us in our family. And I got saved at Coca Lake Bible Camp. And when I came back home from camp that week, I knew that something radical had changed. I knew that I had an experience with Jesus Christ that was real that was alive, from which I would never turn back, nor could I ever turn back. I was convinced of that. And I also knew that um, being a Christian had certain moral character and behavioral obligations that were placed upon me. I didn't really necessarily know what all of those were. I knew of other Christians, and as I looked at other Christians, other Christians looked so so stable, so solid, so balanced, so together, I thought, they don't have any of the struggles that I have. And so for about a month, I was on a, a spiritual high. But I wasn't close to any Christians who really were actively working to disciple me or grow me up or anything like that. I attended this church and the youth group and, and did my best of what I could. But I was in high school. And my family, my friends, and my flesh were pulling me in every conceivable direction. And I had no idea as a Christian how to deal with the temptations that came my way or the sins that I struggled with or those things inside of me that I knew were wrong, but I wanted to be right and I wanted them to go away. So between the ages of 14 and 18, I basically lived a roller coaster of a spiritual life. I had a lot of spiritual highs followed by a lot of spiritual lows and there was no consistency. And I would guess that in all of that, it was kind of like the stock market. Goes up, goes down, but over the course of a long period of time, you can see some moderate progress and progress that would encourage you, but you hit all of the, all of the peaks and all of the lows. That was my spiritual existence. And so I would go to camp or I would go to retreat or I would go to youth event and I would sort of get, I would sort of rededicate my life and get things turned around and charged up and on fire and say, okay, I'm going to commit to this now. This is serious. And then within a month, it'd be right back down in the bottom again. And so I really struggled with this. In fact, one of the reasons that I went to Bible college was because as I looked at all of the mature Christians that were around me, I saw that none of them had any struggles. None of them had any troubles or trials or temptations. None of them struggled with sin or 
uh, anything like that. And so I wanted to be like that. And I thought, obviously, the place to go to learn that is someplace where they could teach me the secret of the Christian life. How is it that I get rid of these struggles? How is it that I live my Christian life? I want that victorious life that everybody else seems to be living. And if I go to Bible college, then I'll learn the secret of the victorious Christian life so that I won't struggle anymore with sin, the temptation will be gone, the desires won't be there. I'll reach that plateau that everybody else seems to be enjoying. How many of you are at least somewhat on the same page that I'm on at some point in your Christian existence? I think that likely everybody here has struggled with that. It's a common desire. You know how I know that? Because just a couple of months ago, Jess was teaching through adult Sunday school class in Romans chapter 7, and he was describing how the old man is crucified with Christ, and yet we still have this flesh, this part of us, that longs to do all of the, desi- all of the desires and all of the propensities of the dead man are still with us while we live in this sinful flesh. And I could hear the frustration in the discussion that we were having in the adult Sunday school class as people were asking questions, and I'm just going to paraphrase, but it went something like this. How do I get it to stop? <laughs> now, that's a paraphrase, but that's very close to it. I don't want to do the things that I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't have the power to do them. And the things that I don't want to do are the very things that I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. That was the sentiment. It's the common Christian experience. And of course, you recognize that I'm quoting out of Romans chapter 7. The things that I don't want to do are the things that I do. How do I get it to stop? When do I ever in my Christian life get to the point where I don't struggle with these things anymore? I don't want these things to be part of my life. I want holiness. It's a, what we want is a secret. We want Oprah to put out a book, The Secret. Of the, of the fulfilled, victorious Christian life. A, a multi-million dollar seller that we will be able to pick up. Something about the size of the prayer of Jabez. Real thin with lots of big pictures that we could take in in a moment and all of our questions and all of our problems, all of our temptations will be gone and all of our questions answered. That's what we want. We want a formula. Tell me what it is that I have to do. A, B, C, D, and not do X, Y, and Z, and all of my problems will disappear. We want an instant, quick fix, magic bullet approach to temptation and the struggle with sin, don't we? We tend to want that. Is there such a thing? Well, I went to Bible college thinking there was. And I was confronted by a lot of very... Bible college is great. In fact, there's a... um, we have a student that I went to college with who's here with us today. And um, Bible college is great. But while you're at college, you tend to run into a lot of very well-meaning people handing out a lot of very well-meaning literature written by very well-meaning Christians that's filled with error on this. And typically, the response falls into one of two categories. And we're going to deal with both of those errors, as it were, this morning because I know people who fall into both of these errors regarding how it is that we live our Christian life. Because here's the question. In my sanctification, in my growth and holiness, who is it that lives my Christian life? Is it me or is it the Lord? Who is it? Who is it that lives my Christian life? Is it me or is it the Lord? Do I have to try really hard to live the Christian life and be holy? Or do I have to just simply surrender and give it over to God and rest in Him. Which one is it? Well, Philippians chapter 2 has the answer. 
in those two verses that we just read. And we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, 12 and 13 today, next Lord's Day, and the following Lord's Day. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. This morning, I want to give you an overview of these two verses. We're going to take them together, as it were. And then next Sunday, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we're going to look at verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The following Lord's Day, we're going to look at verse 13. It's God who is at work in you both to will and to do or to work for His good pleasure. So today we're going to look at them in their context. We're going to take those two thoughts sort of together. And I'm going to introduce you to a, a couple of theological terms. I'm not sure that you will have heard the terms. I'm fairly sure that you'll be able to recognize the teaching that these terms represent. And hopefully through all of this, you'll be able to sort of evaluate your own heart and your own life as to how you approach living the Christian life. Now, true to my motto, I think that sacred cows make the best hamburger. So we're going to be scrutinizing some of the things that probably you have been taught at some point in your Christian life. I know certainly that I was. I was taught some of these things at Bible college by very well-meaning, sometimes professors, but most of the time students. I was taught some of these things, and I read some of the books that represent some of the errors. So here's the question. When it comes to living my Christian life, when it comes to being holy, whose job is it? Is it God's job or is it my job? Is it something I work at or is it something that God does? And how do those two things go together? Philippians chapter 2. Read over the verses again. And I want to just connect these to their context and then I'm going to give you these two errors. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do or to work for His good pleasure. Now, this, of course, falls in the context of, of um, what we've looked at several weeks ago. We took a break for the Christmas messages, but it falls in the context of chapter 2, and really it falls within a, a bigger scope, a bigger section of Scripture that begins with chapter 1, verse 27. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, I want you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then what follows is a list of ethical and moral and behavioral commands to the Philippians that sort of flesh out what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. So all of chapter 1, it was all about the centrality of the gospel in the Christian life. And then right before he begins chapter 2, Paul says, I want you to conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of this gospel. Well, what does worthy conduct or what does conduct worthy of the gospel look like? Chapter 1, verse 28, he describes it. You strive together in one spirit, united in mind for the progress of the gospel. It is a striving for the gospel. That's worthy conduct. Worthy conduct is conduct that is united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Worthy conduct, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Worthy conduct is conduct that considers the interest of others ahead of themselves. Conduct that's worthy of the gospel is conduct that considers other people's interests and values other people's things and other people's feelings ahead of its own and is willing to lay itself down for the interests of others. That's worthy conduct. Then the Apostle Paul in verses 5 to 8 gives us an example of such conduct, that selfless, sacrificial servant attitude in the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't consider his own interests as anything to be held on to, but he laid that aside and came and suffered and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What else does worthy conduct look like? Look at verse 14. Do nothing from grumbling or complaining. Ooh! Ouch! Was that just conviction that I felt when I read that? Wait till we get to that. Do nothing... In complaining, complain about nothing. That's worthy conduct. So there's this large ethical, moral, behavioral section of the epistle that we're looking at. And then right in the middle of it is this. You work out your own salvation with fear 
and with trembling, because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So when the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of verse 12, just as you have obeyed in my absence, so I want you now even all the more, sorry, just as you've obeyed in my presence, so I want you now even all the more to obey while I'm absent. So he brings up the issue of obedience. Well, of course, obedience is the whole point of chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Jesus Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's as if Paul is saying, you want an example of obedience? Here it is. Here is what is the greatest example of obedience that you could give. It is God the Son stepping down out of heaven, taking upon Himself human flesh, and becoming obedient even to the point of death. That's obedience. So then Paul right immediately turns around to the Philippians and he says, I want you likewise to obey. Now do you notice that after verses 5-8, through after this marvelous hymn of the Christian faith, some of the most beautiful language ever put to words, where the Apostle Paul describes our Lord's condescension, our Lord's humiliation, and then our Lord's exaltation, that he doesn't pause for even a moment to reflect upon it, but instead he goes right to work and says, now do the spiritual labor. You work, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Just right on the heels of that marvelous hymn, he says, you need to obey. And he wants you to do something. But it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, here's the gospel. Here's the implications of the gospel. You need to work it out. You need to flesh it out so that this gospel that has changed your life, that has transformed you, transformed you, that gospel is to be worked out and lived out in your own life day after day after day for the whole progress of your Christian life. What the Apostle Paul wants is for them to progress in sanctification. I know that sanctification may be a word that maybe some of you have never heard before. Maybe you're confused on what sanctification is. So let me just describe sanctification for you. To sanctify something was to set it apart. If something was sanctified, it was set apart for a special use. Like you might sanctify this pulpit is to be used for teaching. Uh, the time that we set apart here for worship of God on Sunday mornings is sanctified. It's set apart. It's something that is other. It's something for another purpose. In other words, it is holy. And that's really what the word sanctified means. It means holy. It's set apart for a holy or a special use. Now, sanctification for us happens in three tenses, past, present, and future. In the past, you and I were sanctified. That is, we were set apart by God for God. That was a positional sanctification. He said, you're mine. He loved us. He set us apart for Himself as His people, a special people for His own possession. But then when I got saved, I was literally, that sanctification process began and it was made sure. And now, day to day in the present, I am continually being sanctified as God conforms me and transforms me into the image of Jesus Christ. So that today I'm holier than I was when I was 14 or 15 and I got saved. And it's a slow process and slow progress, but it is progress and it's in the right direction. And I am continually being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ more and more, day after day, from glory to glory. That's continual, present sanctification. But there's coming a day when I will be totally and fully and finally sanctified when I am with Him and sin is no more. I don't have sin in me. I don't do sin. I can't commit sin. So then I will be sanctified both past, present, and future and all of my sanctification will be complete. So I have been sanctified and if you're a believer, you have been sanctified. You are being sanctified and someday you ultimately will be sanctified. That is, you will be made holy. But what we're concerned about is not our past sanctification because that's what the Lord did in setting us apart for Himself. 
And we're not so much concerned about the future sanctification. That's guaranteed and I think secured. And I don't have to worry about that. What we struggle with is today, right? It's today sanctification. How do I make myself more holy today than I was last week? Or can I make myself more holy today than I was last week? Is that possible? Who does it? Who lives my Christian life? And we're going to get back to Philippians chapter 2 in just a moment when we wrap all of this up. I want to introduce you to two errors that Christians make in trying to answer that question. Two errors. The first error is the error of what is called quietism. Quietism. Q-U-I-E-T-I-S-M. Quietism. Quietism is sort of a passive approach to living the Christian life where we say, I can't do anything to make myself holy. God has to do it. He has to do all of the work. And so all I need to do is I need to just surrender to the Lord. That's my job. Surrender. And if I surrender, God will do the work of making me holy. The desires will leave. The temptations will leave. I won't have to resist. I won't have to struggle. I won't have to fight. I won't be tempted because I will surrender. And if I surrender, God will live my Christian life through me. So it's very passive. And the key word for the quietest is the word surrender. I just simply have to yield and surrender and God does all of the work. The problem with quietism is that it basically eliminates all of my action, activity, and work in the process of my sanctification. It's God who does it. Now, there's a phrase that I'm sure you've heard. I'm going to give you the first two words. You give me the last two words because I'll see if if you've all heard this phrase. This is typical refrain within quietistic circles. You need to let go and... How did you know that? You've heard that? You need to let go and let God. Now the wonderful thing about that is it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so esoteric, so simple yet profound, so basic yet complicated. You need to let go and let God. That's quietism. I can't do it. And a quietist would actually say, if you resist temptation and if you struggle against sin, you're actually in sin. You you shouldn't resist and you shouldn't struggle because if you do it, then you're taking that away from God. God can't do it as long as you're doing it. So what you need to do is stop doing it, surrender yourself to the Lord, and He will do it through you. So if I grip my spiritual teeth, as it were, and I make myself obey, the quietist would say, in making yourself obey, you may obey, but your obedience is a work of the flesh, and so therefore your obedience is actually sinful because it wasn't of faith, it was of the flesh. And what you really need to do is you really need to let go Let God stop resisting, stop making yourself obey, and just let God obey through you. You heard that. And maybe you've heard it fleshed out in terms similar to that, or maybe entirely different terms, but that's basically quietism. Now the problem with quietism is this. Quietism divorces needlessly our justification, that is being declared righteous in the sight of God, from our sanctification, that is being made holy in the sight of God. And they actually create two different groups of Christians. So they would say, you can actually become a Christian, be justified in the sight of God, and be not sanctified at all until you reach some crisis point in your life where you then surrender and yield to the Lord, and then you step onto this higher spiritual plane that only an elite group live on where they are being continually sanctified and holy and temptation is no more and the struggle with sin is no more because you're actually surrendered. The second problem with the quietism idea 
is that it gives people an excuse to defer obedience. Now, I'm walking through the aisle at the grocery store. And you know how the aisles at the grocery store are when you go to the checkout stand. Even the December issues of every magazine have swimsuits on the front of them for who knows whatever reason. Where it's sunny in this world at this time of the year, I don't know. But they put that all on, on the sides of the aisles there. And when I go through there, i got to put blinders on my eyes. And I look at my cart and I watch my kids and I watch the thing and I, I, I do that. Now the quietest would say, if you're struggling or if you're making yourself do that, that's wrong. What you need to do is you need to let God do that. You need to surrender to the Lord. And what quietism does is it ends up giving us an excuse to put off obedience until God does it for us and through us so that I don't have to do it. And if I obey, then I'm doing the wrong thing because I'm not supposed to resist. I'm not supposed to do that work. I'm supposed to let God do the work through me. But then quietism, you get frustrated with quietism. You get frustrated because you, you think, oh, I got you sin, and then you think, oh, i got to try harder. No, I can't try harder. That's wrong. That's compounding my problem. I can't try harder. I have to surrender. Let God do it. And then temptation comes, and you want to resist. You say, I can't resist. I, because I've got to let God do the obeying through me. So I can't resist this temptation. Then you give in to the temptation. Then you sin. And you say, oh, i got to try harder. But no, I can't try harder. You see the vicious circle? And you get caught in this vicious circle of trying to obey. I can't try to obey because i got to let God do it through me. You just need to let go and let God, the quietest would say. You know what the problem with it when you tell yourself, I can't try to obey? You know what the problem is? You won't. You won't obey. Then your life becomes a moral train wreck. You can't obey if you're not going to try to obey. And the quietest says you can't try to obey. You just need to let go and let God. That's wrong. Let me say something about myself that will be scandalous to you quietists who might be among us. This is going to shock you. You're going to be absolutely shocked to hear your pastor confess this. My wife is sweating bullets right now. (laughs) What are you going to confess? Here it is. I work very, very hard at resisting sin. I work very hard at it. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness because bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things because it holds promise not only for the present life, but also for the life to come. So discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I work very hard at resisting temptation, at maintaining moral purity, at avoiding temptation in situations where I might be tempted to compromise myself. I'm always vigilant. And I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on any immoral or impure thing. And I've made a covenant with my mouth not to say those things that are wrong or degrading or dishonoring to God. So I work very hard at it. Now, if you're a quietist, you're sitting there and you're saying, oh, I can't believe our pastor just doesn't surrender to the Lord. All right, second error, pietism. That's the second one, quietism and pietism. Quietism is over here. Quietism says you let God do all of it. The key word is surrender. Pietism is the opposite extreme. Pietism says, I do it. God's not involved in the process. I do the sanctifying. I do the making holy myself. It's something that I do. And their key word is not surrender, it's duty. I do my duty. Pietists are all into all kinds of lists. They have lists for everything. Quietism tends to be very emotional, very mystical, very experiential, very feelings-oriented. 
Pietism is not feelings-oriented, emotional, or subjective, or mystical at all. It is a list of do's and don'ts that you do in order to be holy. It is things you must avoid, places you cannot go, things you cannot do. And it's coupled up with lists of things that you have to do if you're going to be holy. Pietism tends to basically devolve into moralism and legalism. So they have an outward catalog of all of the things that would let you know if you're doing enough to be holy. You ever run into a pietist? They have all kinds of, all kinds of standards, all kinds of lists, all kinds of outward trappings by which you make yourself holy. Women can't wear makeup. Why? Well, that would be worldly. And you can't use hairspray. And you can't wear jewelry. And you have to wear a dress every day, whether you're working in the garden or mowing the lawn or coming to church or going to the store. Why? Because dresses are holy, and if you don't wear a dress, then you're not spiritual. And guys who believe that, usually are guys that wear plaid. I don't know what the connection is between plaid and flannel and making their women wear dresses all the time. Wish I knew why that is, but that's the way it is. You have to wear a doily on your head. You have to read the King James Bible. You're not as spiritual as the rest of us. And if you don't homeschool, you don't have a hope of being as holy as my family is. And on and on. The list can get just ridiculous. Absurd. You can't go here. You can't go there. You can't have any sort of fun, especially on the Lord's Day. And the more stoic you are, the more serious you are, the more somber you are, the closer you are to holiness. The more joy you have in your life, the less likely you are to be holy anytime soon. They don't have any kind of pleasure. And if you drive a nice car, you can't possibly be holy. If you live in a nice house, you can't possibly be holy. If you don't follow the biblical dietary laws and observe certain feasts and festivals and days, and if you don't read the same books that I read and hang in the same circles that I do and, and grow all of your own food and, and store up your guns and your gold and everything else, you can't possibly be... The list just gets absurd. And I've run into people like that. It's pietism. It's the outward expression of what I have to do in order to be holy. I'm going to make myself holy in the sight of God through things that I do. Now, I said something that will scandalize the quietists. Let me tell you something that's going to scandalize you pietists. Something about your pastor you're going to be shocked to find out. Once again, my wife is starting to sweat bullets. Here it is. Do you know that this afternoon... uh, Let me start with this one. This is an even better confession. I didn't have my devotions this morning. Yeah. That's right. I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning. I got a cup of coffee. I sat down. I started going over my manuscript for this message and getting ready for adult Sunday school class and this message this morning. And I did that from 5 until 8 o'clock, just like I do every Sunday morning. I don't ever have my devotions on a Sunday morning. You're thinking, if you're a pietist, you're thinking to yourself, how in the world can a pastor not have his devotions on the Lord's Day? He can never possibly be holy. I never have devotions on any Sunday morning unless it happens to be a Sunday morning where I'm not preaching. Then I have my quiet time. Now, five or six out of the other seven days of the seven days of the week, I read my Bible and pray and spend time with the Lord every morning, but not on Sunday morning. But if you're a pietist and you think that holiness comes through doing your daily devotions, and that's the key to it, then you're going to be scandalized by the fact that I didn't have my devotions this morning. Furthermore, I want you to know, I'm going to go home this afternoon, this evening, And I'm going to watch, not one, but probably two football games on the Lord's Day. And I'm going to do it not out of duty. I'm going to do it out of sheer enjoyment and pleasure. 
Now that scandalizes the pietists. Now, am I a quietist or am I a pietist? I am neither. Why? They say, what does all the quietism and the pietism have to do with our text? Because the pietist reads chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. And they stop. That's their life verse. That's what they camp on. That's what they hold on to. You have to work. You have to do it. It's all you. Work, work, work. And if you need help, here's the list of things that will make you holy. The quietist, on the other hand, blasts through verse 12, gets to verse 13. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. All you need to do is surrender to the Lord and not do anything. Both quietism and pietism are errors. What is the truth? The truth is that you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So it's not one or the other. It's not me or God. It's not that when one of us works, the other one can't be working. It is that somehow in the mysterious, providential, sovereign, gracious plan of God, my efforts toward holiness are actually effective because He has determined in His grace to work in me so that not only do I will to be holy, but He does the work of being holy. And you say, well, which is it? Is it you or is it God? It's both. And there's no conflict there. It's not that I have to choose between doing it myself or letting God do it. I choose both. And anytime anybody says, I'm going to sacrifice the one and focus on the other, that's an error. Just We've seen this in so many areas of Scripture, have we not? We've seen how this goes together so many times as we went through the book of Acts and we've gone through the book of Philippians. How these two seemingly contradictory ideas always seem to mesh together perfectly. And the biblical authors just... Paul doesn't even bother resolving that conflict, does he? You notice that? He just says this is the way it is. He doesn't try and explain it. This is the truth. You work it out and it's God who works in you. It's not one or the other. It's both. Let me ask you a question. Is God sovereign? Or is man a moral creature who makes real moral choices, who has a will and makes those decisions and is held accountable for it. Which one is it? God sovereign or is man responsible? Both. Is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Both. Is this the word of men or is this the word of God? It's both. We're reading from Paul's book. But this is the word of God. There's no conflict there. Who lives my Christian life, me or the Lord? Both. It's both. And any time I stop and say, I'm going to do it all. Lord, I don't need your help. It's over. And whenever I start and say, okay, Lord, you do it all. I'm not going to do anything. He's not going to do anything. He won't do it. I have to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. And He is at work in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So who lives my Christian life, me or the Lord? It's both. Both you and the Lord live your Christian life. And you see this all the time in Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says that God's power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. And Peter says, By these He has granted to us His precious promises and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God has given you everything that pertains to life and to godliness. If you're godly, it's because God has granted that godliness to you. And He's given you everything you need. He's given you the power. He does the work. It's all Him. 
The promises come from Him, through Him and through what He has done. You have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Very next verse, Peter says, Therefore, you apply all diligence to add to your faith moral excellence. And then he gives a list of character qualities and moral virtues that he says you and I are to apply all diligence to cultivate. Well, which is it, Peter? Make up your mind. Is it the Lord who grants all of that to me, or is it me who cultivates those disciplines in my life? James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God, therefore. Oh, the quietest camps on that verse and says, there you go. Submit to the Lord. Very next phrase, resist the devil and he will flee to you. And the pietist says, see, it's all in the resisting. Well, James, make up your mind. Is it resisting or is it submitting? Which is it? Do I put forth the effort to resist or do I simply sit back and, and wait? Which is it? Paul does this all the time. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. Listen, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Yet the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ, so I don't live, Paul says. Yet the life that I do live, whoa, 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 Paul. Do you live it or do you not live it? Yes. You said you're dead. It's not you who lives. That's right. Christ lives in me. Okay, then. But the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So which is it, Paul? Are you dead in Christ so that He lives through you? Or is it you that's doing the living? It's both. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, 29. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving. And the pietist says, yeah, that's right. Labor and strive. Next phrase, according to His power which mightily works within me. So Paul, which is it? Do you labor and strive? Or is it His power that mightily works within you? Don't tell me it can be both, but it is. And my favorite, 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul talks about the grace of God that took him from being a persecutor of the church and making him a preacher of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul, what made you an apostle? Grace. What made you a preacher? Grace. What made you a holy man of God? What made you who you are today? It's all the grace of God, Paul says. Yet he says, the grace of God toward me was not in vain because I labored more than all of the other apostles. Peter, Matthew, James, John, name your apostle. I worked harder at my Christian life than all of them. I worked harder than all those men. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me, Paul says. What? Give me the answer, Paul. Does it come through working and laboring and striving? Or is it the grace of God within you? Which one is it? Paul says it's all by grace. But I worked really, really, really hard. Yet the working hard was not me. It was the grace of God within me. Isn't that mysterious? Isn't that incredible? That is unbelievable. Paul, which one is it? It's both. Listen, if I do absolutely, I, I am never going to put it this way, I am never going to be made holy apart from my laboring and my striving and my working at it. Never. It will never happen if I do not resist 
discipline myself, fight the battle, wage the war, resist temptation, die daily, sacrifice, uh, uh, allow myself just to be crucified, fight the war that is in me every single day. I will never be made holy apart from that battle. But listen, I can fight and labor and strive all day long, but if it's not God who is at work in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, it'll never happen. I will not progress one millimeter in sanctification if God is not at work in me, no matter how much I work. And if I don't work, He's not going to do any work in me. That blow your mind? You say, what do I do with that? Well, you come back next week. And we are going to look at what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We haven't even really looked at the details of it. All I wanted you to do is I wanted you to recognize the two errors. And ask yourself, am I a quietist or am I a pietist? And how well do you understand that these two things go together? So when I preach on work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you're going to think I'm a pietist, a flaming, raging, hyper-extreme pietist. But then when we get to verse 13 and I preach on it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, you're going to think I'm a flaming, raging quietist. Why? Because I'm a pietistic quietist or a quietistic pietist, however you want to say it, because the both go together. Actually, I'm not pietistic or quietistic, friends. It's just that you have to labor and God does the work. Let me close by giving you just two statements. The first is this. You always need to strike a balance in these things. We tend toward extremes, don't we? In things that we believe. We tend to find something that works really well for us and we jump on that and we neglect all of the other truths about it. We do that with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We do that with the inspiration of Scripture. I've seen people do that with inerrancy. We do that with all of these doctrines that need to go together together and be held together. We may not understand how they balance out, but we need to believe both of them are true. It's God who works and it's me who works. And both of those have to be there in order for me to progress in sanctification or holiness. So we have to strike a balance. The second statement, and this is just a, by way of, of warning, and I'm develop this more in the next two weeks, but I want to introduce it to you here. Beware of anybody, anybody, who offers you a quick fix for the struggle against sin. Beware of anybody who offers you a quick fix for the struggle against sin. Friends, there are no magic bullets. There are no secret formulas. There's no book that's being published that gives us the secret to living a victorious Christian life. There's no quick fix to it. And anybody who comes along and says, here's my formula, you follow this, or here's the key, or here's the secret, and if you just do this one thing, boom, you'll be right up on the plane with all of us perfect Christians who don't struggle with anything, You'll be right up there and living the victorious Christian life. If somebody offers you that quick fix, they're offering to you a fraud. There is no quick fix. There's no magic bullet. You say, now, Jim, I'm as depressed as I've ever been about living my Christian life. That's good. You can be depressed for six more days. We'll come back here and we'll look at what it means to work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and the revelation that it gives us. And we ask, God, that you would give us the grace to be balanced, to avoid the extremes. Father, we pray that you'd give us understanding in how these things go together and, and be diligent in ourselves to apply both of these truths and to trust that both of them are true. We don't understand how some of these things go together. We don't understand your mysterious plan and things which seem to conflict in our minds, but we know that within your mind there's perfect harmony of all truth and we are grateful that you've revealed it to us in your word. 
Give us that grace, O God, to walk with Christ, to work out our salvation, and to trust in you who is at work in us. To the grace and by the glory of Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.